This message is part of the series, Asking for a Friend, what we all think, but think we shouldn't. The entire series can be found at fromthefray.com slash asking. Welcome back to Asking for a Friend. We're in week three, so we are uh, this week in Ecclesiastes chapter three. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to just walk through the whole chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter three, or everything that I'm going to use Bible-wise will be up on the screen. In the the first chapter, so for the first week of our message, Solomon said, life is hard and boring and repetitive and it feels meaningless and then you die. In chapter 2, Solomon says, so here's a whole bunch of bad ideas of stuff you can try to alleviate the pain of human existence. A bunch of bad stuff. Now in chapter 3, Solomon says, okay, if you didn't believe me and you tried that stuff and now you came back to say, you're right, none of that stuff worked, well, here's another way. This way might be a little bit better. Because we would like to ask, I think it's fair to ask, I get it, Solomon says life feels meaningless down here, but does it have to feel that way all the time? Does life always have to feel so meaningless and monotonous and boring? And here's a heavy word, frustrating? Does life always have to feel so frustrating? And we kind of hinted last week No, not always, if we see things from God's perspective, then not as many things are as frustrating as they seem. Right? The closer our heart and our mind gets to thinking and focusing on eternal stuff, the less things down here bother us. Let me say that again. The closer our hearts and minds focus on eternal stuff, the less things down here bother us. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that most of you have either heard that before or maybe you already believe it. You're thinking, yeah, I got it. I understand. Think about eternal stuff, and then stuff down here shouldn't bother me. But it still does. It still does. I get it. I do. And and I think this week, that's why Solomon is chasing this question, and we need to try and answer, why does life feel so hard? Why does it feel so hard then? Okay, I get it. I, I try to read the Bible. I try to do the best I can with what I have. But it still feels hard. Why do I have such a difficult time? Letting things go? Why do I get so emotional? Why are things so frustrating? Why can't I get my hair to do what I want it to do? Why does my car break down? Why is my job hard? Why does my kids, why are, they, why are my kids so gross? Like, why is life so hard? Why does it feel so hard down here? Now, one of the biggest reasons that bears repeating is because we're not in heaven yet. It's true. Hear me out. Don't tune me out. We're not in heaven yet, and so life's going to be hard. Expectation management is a powerful thing. A life without pain is called heaven. A life with pain is called normal. This is not our home yet. Heaven is our home. This is just a journey to get us there. And sometimes journeys are fun. Sometimes journeys are not so fun. Sometimes you feel like you're going downhill and you got the wind at your back and everything's great. And sometimes you hit the bottom of that hill and you got to start pedaling back uphill and you got the wind and the rain blowing in your face. Life is a journey, and it's not always a great journey. This balanced perspective of sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, Solomon unpacks this in what is, I think it's safe to say, the most famous poem about time. The most famous poem about time the world has ever seen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, especially verses 1 through 8. So famous that many people don't even realize these words come from the Bible. They think they come from these hippies in the 1960s called the birds who stole Solomon's verses and wrote a song called Turn, Turn, Turn. It's a decent song if you can tolerate the hippiness. Um, 
But it's not original with them. It came from Solomon. And the reason it made a good song is the same reason I think it's going to touch you today, and that's because it's true. And it comes from a book that knows you. A book that knows you very, very well. So if you hear, hey, life's supposed to be hard. We're not in heaven yet. And you think, I got it. Okay, but all I can do is wait. Do you have anything else for me? Solomon would say yes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is what, he, what else he has for us. This gives us some things, and I hope it gives you some peace where you can actually reach in and grab some areas of our life and manipulate them so that life doesn't have to be more frustrating than it already is. All right. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. Let's jump right in. For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. One of the keys to not making life any more frustrating than it already has to be. Life is frustrating. It's going to be that way until you die. But it doesn't have to be as frustrating if you're asking this question. What season of life am I in right now? Wise people are always asking... What season of life? I want you to leave here today with that question just burned into your memory. What season of a life am I in right now? Let me illustrate by returning to one of my favorite sources of material, my kids. And you know, I have a half dozen kids, and that's um, a lot of kids. Uh, the youngest one is a toddler right now, and his season of life is potty training. That's his big project. That's what he's focused on right now. It's a big deal for him in his world. And he's super excited about it. Um, Anytime he has to go, you know, because he will tell you, and anybody within like a 300-foot radius will know, I gotta pee! And he he bolts off, and he goes to the bathroom, and he runs there, and he jumps up on the potty, he does this thing, and he jumps down, he pulls his pants back up, and he slams his lid down pretty loud, and he flushes, and he yells, pee, you stay in there, and you don't come back. It's very dramatic. I don't know where the whole routine came from, but it's a big deal to him. Very dramatic routine. I have another son who's a couple years older than this one, and he has mastered potty training. So now the world is his toilet. And and at times my wife will still ask me, why do your sons pee in the yard? And the answer is very simple. Because they can. That's it. Because they can. Now, my point with all this is that those stories are only funny because they're age-appropriate for the kids who are living them. Nobody would think either of those stories were funny or cute if they were about me. Nobody cares that I have to go to the bathroom. Nobody cares that I announce it and I run in and I do my stuff. Nobody's going to give me a high five or congratulate me from going potty. Nobody thinks it's cute if, if I urinate in public. You can't do that, adults. You have to stop doing that. We're in a different season of life. You have to wear pants now. It's not cute to go out in public without pants anymore. Only little kids can do that. And even then, I don't, I don't know. Nobody's going to encourage you to take naps, give you food in the shape of zoo animals and and goldfish. It's a different season of life. And here's here's the point. It's a different season of life, and it doesn't do you any good to complain about it. It doesn't. You can be as frustrated as you want to be about the fact that you need to wear pants in public. But you better put those pants on before you go in public. Because it's a different season of life. Complain, whine, bemoan, grieve, cry. Put on your pants because it's a different season of life. Do you know what season you're in right now? Do you know what season you're going through? Solomon says life is like a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. So it's crucial that we know what time it is, especially when we add verse 2 on top of it. The time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest. 
You weren't in charge of your birth, and so you will not be in charge of your death. You didn't pick when you were born. You're not going to pick when you die. Only one man ever controlled his entry into this world and his exit out of this world. His name is Jesus, and we worship him. For the rest of us, all we can do is exercise and eat right and try to avoid as much frustration as possible while we're living down here on earth. I think one of the things that can help us is if we learn the difference between command and control. Now, those are military words. If you don't know the concept behind that, don't worry. It's simple. It's, it's just, this is all there is to it. Command is influence. It's our ability to react and respond to the season of life coming at us right now. That's all it is. It's me reacting, dodging, ducking, weaving, jiving, responding to the seasons of life that are coming at me right now. Control is an illusion, at least for us. God's in control, but we're not. Control is an illusion. It's the changing of the season. If I think I can change the weather, I'm, I'm, I'm deluded. Right? Like Mark, was it Mark Twain who said, everybody complains about the weather, but no one ever does anything about it. It's because it's, a, it's, it's an illusion to think that we can. God has control of the seasons of life that you're going through. He has the control of the changing of the weather. He allows us some degree of command in navigating and responding through the season that he brings and drops at our feet. Why does life feel so hard? Because we try to control the season rather than navigate through it. Why does life feel so hard? Because instead of checking the weather report, we insist on dressing for a sunny day when it's raining outside. What season of life are you in? If it's a season of rain, dress appropriately. What season of life? God has control over the season and always ask, what season am I in? It's one of my favorite verses buried in the Old Testament that many people skip right over and don't read. 1 Chronicles 12, 32. From the tribe of Issachar, there were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. This was a relatively small tribe. But all these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. Wouldn't you like that set of you? Not, not just at your funeral, but now, man. Dude, he seems to understand the world around him. He, he, he can see what's coming, or at least he does the best he can to to interpret the changing times. He's, he's developing the right skill set. He's hanging out with the right people. He's avoiding the wrong kind of people. He's avoiding the wrong kind of places. He's aware of, of where he is in life. He's prepared, and he's getting ready for the next season. Wouldn't you like that to be said of you? What we need to have that said of us, if we want to avoid as much frustration as possible down here on earth, and also, if we don't want to miss some of the opportunities that are only in our life for a season. Right? Some of you know, because I've said it very, very openly up here, I did not ask for this assignment. I did not say, here I am, send me to the other side of the world to live without my family for a year. Didn't volunteer for it, didn't want to do it, got the news, and wasn't happy about it. Didn't want to be here. And if I'm completely honest, if I was given the opportunity to go home with integrity, I'd probably go home tomorrow because my wife has a whole lot better company than all of you. But I'm here. That's the season of life that I'm in. I didn't ask for it, but here I am. Now, this season of life gives me a lot of time. I have a lot of free time. At home, as I said, there are half a dozen kids. Currently, right now, as we speak, there are six kids in orbit around one parent 
where normally there would be an orbit at least around two parents, the whole set. But they just have one. My wife has all six orbiting around her by herself right now as we speak. Now, when I go home, when this assignment is eventually over, I'll have those kids in orbit around me again. Now, how silly would it be for me to return home when this is over and then start complaining because I have, I have no more free time? I have all this free time now. When I go home, I know I'm going to have six people orbiting around me and then a wife. A wise person says, what season am I in right now? And how can I best redeem the time? How can I best redeem the season that I'm in right now? I can't control it. I can't change it. The best I can do is navigate through it. That's the best I can do. Bottom line is this. You and I cannot control the amount of time we spend in each season. What we can do is have some influence over whether those seasons count, whether there's any value. I could spend 365 days over here complaining over the fact that I got an assignment I didn't want and have no redeeming value to how I spend this year of my life. Or I can say, God's brought me into this season for a reason. What might it be? How can I redeem the time? And then move on to another season when it comes. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 4. It's a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance. Expectation management is a powerful thing. So let me state the obvious. Some seasons of life are going to feel better than others. Some seasons of life, it's going to feel very appropriate to laugh and sing and dance and embrace. By all means, do it. Turn it up. Dance and sing and then sing some more. Laugh. Because, you know, when you don't need me to tell you, eventually that season will come to an end and it will be replaced by another season where it feels more appropriate to have tears and sorrow and grief. Those cycles are just part of living life down here under the sun. Now, my prayer is that you're in a happy season right now and you're singing and you're dancing your way to work every day. However, when that season comes to an end, and you enter into a very dark season of life. Not if, but when. As your pastor, I pray you would think of these two things. Neither of these things I'm going to share with you are original with me. Solomon's dad, David, wrote what is probably the most famous collection of verses, the 23rd Psalm. And from that, in verse 4, he gives us two things that I pray you will remember when you enter into a season that is really characterized and dominated by darkness. Verse 4 of the 23rd Psalm. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. First thing I would like for you to remember when you get to a dark season of life is that God will be there in the dark seasons too. Solomon says, or David says here, you're, you're close beside me. There, there are, if they haven't been already, or maybe there is right now, there are going to be seasons of your life where, where you, you know nothing, you understand nothing. It feels like God has turned out the lights on you. You are sitting alone in the dark and nothing makes sense. My prayer is that you would say, if I know nothing else in this season of life, I know that God is here with me. I'm not alone. 
I know nothing else, but at least I know, when, even if I can't see him, I know that God's there with me. Because when God says, I will not leave you, what he meant was, I will not leave you. And so if you know nothing else, then I am not alone. That frees you up to ask, then what, and what can I possibly learn from this season of life? And when we get into that posture is when we begin to become teachable. And God can teach us what that season is intended to teach us and then lead us out of it as soon as possible. Tell yourself, dark, God will be there in the dark seasons too. So if I know nothing else than the fact that I'm not alone, what else might I be able to learn from this dark season? The second thing I want to remind you is that a dark season is not a life sentence. David didn't say, when I move permanently into the valley of the shadow of death and change my address and live there for the rest of my life. No, David said, when I walk through it. And so I want you to remember that whatever you're going through, listen, you're going through it. You're not sitting in the middle of it. You're walking through it. Just keep walking. Keep walking, knowing if nothing else, I'm not alone, and there is an end to this tunnel. I don't need to see it to know that it's there. It's there. <laughs> I tell you, in the, in the early days of finding out about this assignment, the only thing that comforted me about 365 days by myself, without my family, you guys are okay, but you're not my family, right? The only thing that comforted me about those 365 days was knowing that there would be a day 366. Amen? Listen, whatever you're going through right now, you're going through it. It's not a life sentence. It's just a life season. Don't get stuck in any season of life. Keep moving. Keep moving. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to turn away. A time to search and a time to quit searching. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Whether it's people or stuff or money, it doesn't matter. Everything and everyone is either moving into your life or moving out of your life. Everything. So ask yourself some wise questions. I want, I want to give you four questions that prayerfully will put some handles on verses 5 and 6 here of uh, chapter 3. I want to give you some handles. That way you can wisely ask, what season of life am I in and how do I navigate through it? Because remember, the whole point of this message, and I think the point of what Solomon's trying to say here, is life's already frustrating. Don't make it harder than it has to be by not being aware of what season of life you're in. Here are some questions, some handles on these two verses that will help us understand what season of life we might be in. First question is this. Am I trying too hard to maintain a relationship that's run its course? Now, if that relationship is your spouse, the answer to that is no. I can already tell you, it's no. You serve your spouse until one of you sees Jesus face to face. And murder is not an option. You put a ring on a finger, you stuck with him, you serve him. Keep trying until something changes or one of you dies. Now, for every other relationship, perhaps that person, not perhaps, most definitely, for every other relationship, that person came into your life either because God sent them there to, to help you in that season, because they're there to help carry you or carry something through a season of life, or maybe God sent you them sent you there to them to teach them something or to show them something or to carry something for them. 
it's, it's, it's life and it's constantly moving. People are coming into your life and they're coming out of your life. But if the next season is forcing or leading you apart, be wise enough to recognize that and just keep moving. Now, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying devalue relationships because people don't matter. For heaven's sake, if you've known me 30 seconds, you know that's, I don't think that way. The one another section of verses to encourage and love and support one another, beautiful that we need to spend more time focusing on. I'm not saying relationships don't matter. I'm saying be aware of the transience of life. Solomon says life is like a vapor. It's like a mist. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. So be a good steward of your time and your emotions. Sometime back, uh, my wife had a solid relationship with a good Christian woman, woman of God, and that friendship carried both of them through some seasons of life. They both really took turns supporting one another in different seasons of life. Eventually, the relationship between our kids became pretty toxic, and so it, it forced us to, to part ways and to move our families into new seasons. It's just, it's just the way it is. They're not bad people. They're very good people, but... but Life just pulled us into different seasons. Second question. Am I spending what I should be saving? Am I spending what I should be saving? Now, I'm not anti-stuff. All right? When people find out that we're homeschoolers, they think that my wife makes all the clothes you know, at the living room table, and I force my kids to go out and forage for their supper. No, we don't do that. We have a couch and a TV and stuff. I'm not anti-stuff. But we also have a savings account. And we buy used cars. Right? Am, I, am I saving? Am I, am I spending when I should be saving? It's something we should always be asking ourselves. Am I spending too much? Man, do you have a savings account for your family? Do you have an emergency account if something goes wrong tomorrow? Are you saving to prepare for that? Do you have enough saved up? Are you, are you taking your family out to eat when you know every once in a while? Because you should be doing that as well. Or at least your wife. You can leave your kids at home. They're optional. Am I spending when I should be saving? Next question. Am I hoarding when I should be sharing? See, sometimes saving, we can make it sound super spiritual, and we can do it too much. It's, it is possible to overdo saving. That's called hoarding. Am I hoarding when I should be sharing? Don't be like the guy in Luke 12 who had so much stuff that he had to keep building more barns to keep putting his stuff in. And then he died with a bunch of barns full of a bunch of stuff. Don't do that. Listen, make a decision now. Because it won't happen automatically. Make a decision that you are going to be a financial blessing to somebody else. I'm not saying pay off their mortgage, unless you can. I'm saying make a decision that you're going to be a financial blessing to somebody else. You won't regret it. All right, last question for these two, ver- these two verses. Am I getting ready when I should be getting to work? Am I getting ready when I should be working? In other words, sticking with these two verses, am I always searching and rehearsing and looking and reading and training and preparing without ever, without ever actually doing something, without ever actually pulling the trigger and, and making a decision and leaping into action? One preacher likens this to a gun collector who collects guns, cleans the guns, polishes the guns, takes care of the guns, lines all the guns up, but never actually shoots the gun. Right? Have, a, have a bias toward action and pull the trigger every once in a while. If not, your entire life will be ready, aim, aim, ready, aim, aim, dead. Keep moving and ask yourself, am I getting ready when I should be getting to work? 
Verses 7 and 8. There's a time to tear, to be quiet, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. Now with these, your personality is going to naturally have you leaning one way or the other. Ever seen this picture before? Everybody seen this picture? They don't say out loud, because we'll start fighting here if you answer out loud, because we've got different personalities in the room. But my question about this picture is, who's right? Who's right? The hippie or the soldier? Now before you can even begin to answer that question, you have to ask, what season is it? What season was this country in? What, what's, what's, what were they going through? What, what, what brought them to that? What were the events surrounding it? You have to always ask, what season am I going through? Now, sticking with these two verses, I need to say, for most of my life, I've had to remind myself, because I know where my biases lie, I've had to remind myself, I rarely regret not saying something. In other words, shut up, Bill. You'll be glad you did. Because usually my biases lead me towards saying more than I need to say. However, you can move into a season of life where peer pressure or fear of man issues can cause you to, to stay seated when it's time to stand up and say something. Be aware of your biases, which way they lean you, and keep asking, what season of life am I in? Because in every area of life, listen to this, every area of life, whether it's just you, you yourself and you, or your spouse, or with your kids, or your co-workers, your family, your community, national, international, globally, in every area of life, all peace is earned peace. Remember, we're not in heaven yet. So strife and struggle is to be expected. It's to be expected. All peace, you have to earn it. You're not going to wake up one day and, and people are just going to hand you a peaceful, easy life. You have to work for it. You have to struggle for it. Now, that's not an excuse for anyone, a person or a president, to rush to war and start shooting anytime she gets her feelings hurt. It's not what I'm saying. But there's also no biblical excuse, no biblical argument for pacifism. There's a time for peace and there's a time for war. Now, from the flood in Genesis uh, 6 or 7 all the way through to Revelation, God has been at war with evil. And sometimes he calls on us to join the struggle. We need to know what time it is. We need to know what season it is. And we need to know which way our biases are going to be encouraging us so that we stop and ask, do I have any blind spots? What do I not know that I don't know? And how do I need to navigate correctly through this season of life that God has brought and dropped at my feet? All right, quick summary so far. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Solomon just gave us a comprehensive list that speaks into every season of life you're going to encounter. I encourage you to go back and read the list and see just how comprehensive it really is. Solomon leaves no stones unturned. There are 14 positive statements, 14 negative statements. He does this to remind us that everyone has a role to play. You have a role to play. You have a responsibility to act rightly. Right? That's what the word responsible means. You are able to respond. God is in control. He's sovereign. He's on the throne. Absolutely, God's in control. But he put you in command of the areas of your life that keep coming at you on a regular basis, like clockwork, right? The seasons change. We know when it's going to be winter and then fall and then summer and spring. We, we know when that's going to happen. Not in that order, but um, 
like clockwork, and the seasons of your life change the same way, and you're in command of how you decide to navigate through that in a way that says, look, life's hard enough already. Why add more frustration to this than I already have to feel? Why does life feel so hard? Because sometimes we stop thinking critically like this, and we stop asking, what season of life am I in? We have to remember, even though we like to think of God only as being one-dimensional, that he's not. God's not one-dimensional. God doesn't just bring life. God also brings death. Solomon just told us that. God doesn't only, only build up. He also tears down. He doesn't only bring us happiness and, and laughter. He also brings us tears and joy. God's not one-dimensional. So to understand the world that we live in, who you are, and the God whom you fall under, you have to remember that. What season of life am I in? The God whom I serve doesn't just bring happiness and drop happiness at my feet. Sometimes there's a difficult season that I have to wear pants. I have to wear pants and navigate through this in a way that I'll be proud of myself on the other side of it. It's neither good nor bad. It just is. It just is. So you have to continue asking and knowing what season of life am I in right now? What time is it? Now, nobody did that better than Jesus. Let me show you. The Bible tells us, when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. What does that mean? At just the right time, God sent his son into the world. Well, if you look at what season the world was in when Jesus showed up, we would see a couple of things that matter a lot. We would see that there was a tremendous amount of Jewish unrest and pressure from the average good Jewish person because of the Pharisees' legalistic enforcement of God's guidance and God's law. In other words, you had, you had good, decent people. I've said it a million times. I think everybody's doing the best they can with what they have. I think you are, and I think they were 2,000 years ago when the Pharisees were making it harder on people than they needed to. So people were asking, this is my point, people were asking for the first time, they were seriously asking, I don't think these Pharisees are right. I don't think God really intended for it to be this hard for me to show him that I love him and and to be faithful to him. I think these Pharisees have it wrong. I think Judaism, as we know it, is incorrect. That's the world that Jesus stepped into. Now, on the other side of that, there was also this growing sense of Gentile defeatism. There was this despondency. If you were not a Jew, if you were a Gentile, you had this growing despondency with the, the whole Roman set of pagan gods. From Zeus all the way down, people were asking, really for the first time ever, are these gods able to deliver in a way that they promise? Because we put a lot of work. You walk out the door and you see the the colossal monuments that were built to this pantheon of of pagan gods. They're all over our, our, our country here in Turkey. And they were asking, this has been a lot of work, and I don't think that this work we put into this matters because I don't think these gods are able to deliver. People didn't always think that way, but they were starting to think that way for the first time when Jesus stepped into the world. And not only that, but over here on the secular side, you had this Greek common language where for the first time in the history of the world, the known world anyway, people were able to to read and understand the same language. They may speak their own common native tongue, their own native tongue, but they can all read Greek thanks to work that Alexander did 300 plus years before Jesus showed up. People could read the same language. And thanks to the Romans, 
They have this system of roads where they could travel safely and relatively quickly around the entire known world. So now when you ask what season was the world in, you see where people were looking at this old religious system as being really corrupted and, and this political system as setting the stage to, to bring an entirely new way of thinking into the world. That's why Jesus was able to say, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news because the time, Mark 1.15, the time promised by God has come. It's here. And even after years of plotting to kill Jesus, we still read, then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Jesus was always on time. He always knew what time it was, and he was always on time. As Gandalf said of wizards, he is neither late nor early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Jesus was in complete control of when he entered into this world. He was in control of when he left this world. He was in control of when you entered into this world. And listen, he's going to be in complete control of when you leave this world as well. Hebrews 9 tells us, And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's going to happen. I know it, and you know it. Solomon will not let us forget it. For some reason, Solomon continues to repeat the fact that we are going to die. He must think, for some reason, that the key to enjoying life down here is realizing that it's not going to last forever. And so he, like, like he keeps beating like a drum over and over like a broken record. You're going to die. It's going to happen. It's inescapable. The death rate is one per person. No one gets out of here alive. I don't think Solomon's doing it to be morbid. I think Solomon is doing it to remind us the key to understanding life under the sun is to know that one day you're going to leave. That puts things into an entirely different perspective. That is why Solomon says this, and we'll start to wrap it up. Ecclesiastes 3, 10, and 11. I've seen the burden God has placed on us all, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. Eternity. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. This verse is the reason why I always say, one, that this book knows you. This book knows you better than you know you. It knows you extremely well. But it's also the reason why I say there are no true atheists in the world. And I will, I will go to my grave saying that. There are no true atheists who are confidently saying, I'm absolutely sure there is no God, there is no creator, I just showed up one day. That kind of bold atheism, to say that I'm, I'm certain there's no creator, I'm certain there's no God, that requires far too much faith for any human being. We don't have that much faith. As much as we may struggle to deny it, as much as the dark seasons of our life that we alluded to earlier, as much as those dark seasons might try to convince you of this, you and I know. We can't deny it. There's something more. There's something more out there. To some degree, our hearts, our emotions, our mind, there's, it's always at a constant state of turbulence until we come to grips with the fact that we were placed on earth by a creator. He made us and put us here. Star Wars fans might say, there is a disturbance in the force that is keeping you and I from being at peace, from being at rest, until we come to grips with the fact that a creator put us here for a reason. To quote that great theologian Darth Vader, he said it well. 
your lack of faith disturbs me. I find your lack of faith disturbing. This is why, incidentally, we should not be, this is why we should not be unkind to our unbelieving friends and neighbors and co-workers. Don't be unkind. First of all, it's not winsome. It's not Christ-like. Don't be unkind. But verse 10 tells us they carry a burden of confusion about why life is so repetitive and unfulfilling and frustrating. At the very least, we can say, I, I may not like it, but it was God's idea. This whole life-frustrating cycle down here, it was God's idea. I don't understand all of it, but I, I know there's a reason. They have, they have nothing to, to take away the turbulence or the unrest or the disturbance in the force. So don't be unkind. In verse 11, just just helps us empathize even more because it says, like, there are plenty of things down here that even we, especially me, we're not going to understand about what God does until we are with Him. That's why I've said it a million times, one of the first things we'll say in heaven once we catch our breath and get back up on our feet, one of the first things we'll say when we get there is, oh, okay. Now I understand. So I'll finish with this verse. Ecclesiastes 3, 13 and 14. People should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. And I know that whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to or taken from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. What does that mean, by the way, whenever you read that in the Bible, that God wants us to quiver and shake in the corner when we think of him? No, I don't think that's quite it. I think this verse tells us a couple of things about God's nature. This is We're going to wrap it up with this. The first thing it tells us is that God's plans never need to be corrected. They're not wrong. And to the extent we think God got it wrong, we need to go back and look in the mirror a little bit longer. God didn't get it wrong. Now, I say that ultimately because I want you to take comfort from it. Because there are times in your life, and I know this about you because I know it about me, when you feel like God forgot you, or God's late, or God got it wrong, or God doesn't know where you ended up, or God's not going to bring you back, or you've gone so far that God can't reach you anymore. That's not true. God's plans don't need revised or added to, to quote the greatest band of all time, you too. What you don't have, you don't need it now. That's the way we should approach God and his control over our life. What you don't have, you don't need it now. It's the second thing, the final thing I want us to get about the nature of God from this little collection of two verses. It's that Jesus is always in complete control of your life. His plans don't need to be corrected, and he is in complete control of your life. And my prayer is that that would produce at least two emotions in you. First of all, I pray that it would make you extremely humble. Extremely humble. You mean that, that God would allow me to enjoy any fruits of my labor whatsoever? Anything left over, he would allow me to enjoy any of the fruit of my labor? Remember, the whole point of Christmas, the message of Christmas is that you and I messed up this world so much that Jesus had to come down here and die to fix it and make it right. That's the message of Christmas. There's no way you can, you can stay humble after accepting Christmas the way it's biblically presented. You mean that after God would come down here to die, to fix a world that I broke, he would still, for some reason, allow 
me to have gifts to, to give me anything left over after that, that should make you extremely, extremely humble. Any pride in me, and it's there, absolutely, it's there, but it only exists to the extent that I have forgotten the heart of the Christian message. Prideful Christian is a contradiction of terms. They don't go together. The second thing, the second emotion I would like you to get out of this verse, it's the last one, it's the one I want you to walk out of here with, is security. When we say that that God's plans don't need to be corrected and that Jesus is always in command of our lives, I want you to feel secure about that because no, being a Christian does not zip us off to some magical land where God replaces all of our problems with unicorns and there's no boy bands. We don't live in that world. And many Christians have been sold a lie and they converted for that and, and they're going to be sadly disappointed. That's not the world that we live in. We're still susceptible to diseases and we still get diabetes and our kids still act up and and we still have to avoid addictions and our emotions still get the best of us. We live in the same world. But we don't live in it alone. We're not forgotten. And even in that darkest valley, we're promised that God is right there beside me. You know what? God has no abandoned children. There are no orphans in the kingdom of God. Whatever you're going through or whatever starts tomorrow that you're not even aware of today, I pray that you could rest well at night knowing that your God is on the throne and your God is by your side. Amen.